Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. With the federal election in full swing, we will hear legal expert and researcher Paula Malay critique the Harper government's tough-on-crime policies. We will also hear political scientist Dennis Pilon address the question of parliamentary coalitions in a minority parliament. We'll hear Free Press reporter Helen Falding speak about the lack of potable water on First Nations reserves, and defense analyst Bill Robinson will guide us through military spending in Canada compared to other nations. First, the alert headlines for the week of March 31st, 2011. Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff and conservative leader Stephen Harper squared off financial issues in the early days of their respective election campaigns, with Ignatieff attacking Tory spending on prisons and defense, and Harper promising to cut family taxes once the federal budget is balanced. A candidate for the Conservative Party was also a lobbyist for Lockheed Martin, the manufacturer of the F-35 fighter jet that has been a source of controversy on Parliament Hill. Raymond Sturgeon, who is running in the Northern Ontario riding of Algoma Manitoulin Kapaskasing, is a senior partner at the Ottawa-based lobbying firm CFN Consultants. It specializes in defense and security, and Lockheed Martin is one of several clients that sells aircraft and equipment to government departments. Lockheed Martin has won a number of contracts with the Defense Department over the years, but the big one that has proven to be a divisive issue on Parliament Hill is the F-35 fighter jet deal, the largest military procurement in Canada's history. Western coalition warplanes continued to pound Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi's bastion and hometown of Sirte as rebel forces fight their way toward the government stronghold guarding the road to the capital of Tripoli. The rebels' rapid advance came on the back of international airstrikes that have battered Gaddafi's air force, armor, and troops for more than one week. Opposition forces have recaptured all the territory they lost the past week. A spokesman for the opposition forces says Libyans will decide their own future after Gaddafi is overthrown. British government officials have suggested that coalition countries would be prepared to allow Muammar Gaddafi to escape prosecution and be granted safe haven as part of a deal to end the conflict in Libya. Publicly, David Cameron has called for Gaddafi to face an investigation by the International Criminal Court in The Hague, but privately, government officials suggest there is growing support for a deal which would allow him immunity from prosecution and the chance to live out his life in another country if he were to leave Libya and call an end to the fighting. Egypt's military leaders have announced that parliamentary election will be held in September. The ruling Supreme Council of the Armed Forces said emergency laws that have helped crush political life for decades would be lifted before elections, but did not say when, and approved a law easing restrictions on political party formation. Many secular reform groups have been calling on the military, which has governed since Mubarak was deposed on February 11th, to extend the transitional period to allow political life to recover from decades of oppression. The Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamist group formally banned under Mubarak, has emerged as the country's best organized political force. Other fledgling groups are trying to organize. The Islamist group and other reformists are discussing the idea of entering the legislative election 
in an alliance to produce a revolutionary majority that will take the lead in drafting a new constitution once the parliament is elected. In Syria, President Bashar al-Assad has sent soldiers into the streets of several Syrian cities following weeks of protests that have shaken the regime. In the northern city of Latakia, at least 12 people have died. Amnesty International says at least 55 people have been killed in ongoing anti-government protests in Daraa over the past week. Two Reuters television journalists have been missing in Syria since Saturday night. Up to one million people from Ivory Coast have now fled fighting in the main city of Abidjan, according to the UN Refugee Agency. Ivory Coast may be on the verge of civil war following a disputed election in November last year, which Alassane Ouattara is recognized internationally to have won. Incumbent Laurent Gbagbo has refused to step down, saying the results were rigged. According to Amnesty International, the number of countries executing convicts rose to 23 in 2010, four more than the previous year. The year 2009 saw the lowest number of countries impose the death penalty since the 50-year-old rights organization began keeping statistics. An increasing number of countries have stripped capital punishment from their books, and fewer executions are being reported across the globe, the report said. The West African nation of Gabon became the 96th nation to officially eschew the use of capital punishment in February 2010. China retained the title of the world's biggest executioner, killing what Amnesty estimated were thousands of convicts. A Royal Society study suggests that China is on course to overtake the U.S. in scientific output possibly as soon as 2013. An analysis of published scientific research reveals an especially striking rise by Chinese science. This study shows that China, after displacing the UK as the world's second leading producer of research, could go on to overtake America in as little as two years' time. Chinese spending has grown by 20% per year since 1999, now reaching over $100 billion, and as many as 1.5 million science and engineering students graduated from Chinese universities in 2006. Greenpeace has called on the Japanese government to extend an evacuation zone around the stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station, saying it had found high radiation levels outside the zone. Meanwhile, low levels of radiation from the Japanese nuclear plant have now been detected as far away as Massachusetts, where low concentrations of radiation have been found in rainwater. In Germany, there has been fallout of a different kind from the Japanese nuclear crisis. The anti-nuclear Green Party has defeated Angela Merkel's Conservative Party in one of Germany's richest states. Analysts at Deutsche Bank say the election could lead to a radical reordering of Germany's nuclear energy policy and an accelerated schedule for the permanent shutdown of some or all of Germany's 17 nuclear reactors. Several mass anti-nuke protests have occurred in Germany and other European nations over the past two weeks. Those were the alert headlines for the week of March 31, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 31, 2011. On April 4th, join No One is Illegal Toronto for a People's Assembly on Immigrant Rights, Undocumented and Temporary Work, and the Fight for Status in Canada. Speakers include Ai-Jen Poo, 
co-chair of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in the United States, David McNally, professor at York University, and Farah Miranda, an immigrant rights and feminist organizer in Toronto. The assembly begins at 6.30 p.m. and will be held at Ryerson University. The Voices Coalition is organizing a rally and public forum for April 6th in Ottawa, but they need your help. The goal for the rally is to have a representative from each of the five main federal parties available at the rally's ending point on Parliament Hill to respond to the government's undermining of democracy and human rights in recent years. However, the rally will only proceed if at least 200 people agree to participate prior to April 6th. If you wish to participate, email Ashton Star at ashton at cwp-csp.ca. Former Afghan MP Malale Joya has said, no nation can donate liberation to another nation. This is certainly the case for Canada's involvement in the war in Afghanistan, where civil, civilian casualties spiked in 2010 and the rate of killing is increasing each month. The Canadian Peace Alliance has organized a pan-Canadian Day of Action on April 9th to demand that Canadian troops leave Afghanistan immediately. If you're in Vancouver, meet at the Downtown Public Library at 1 o'clock p.m. In Toronto, meet across from the U.S. Consulate, 360 University Avenue at noon. Join community and labor activists in Toronto on April 9th to protest the aggressive conservatism of Mayor Rob Ford. Since taking office in November, Ford has made clear attacks on public transit, unions, public services, and Toronto's environmental plans. Meet at Toronto City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. to tell Mayor Ford, these are our services, this is our city. A conference on niobium mining in Oka will be held at the University of Quebec at Montreal on April 14th. Speakers include Ellen Gabriel, Mohawk from Kanasataki, Alain Deneau, author of Noir Canada, and Simon Dubois of the Oka Citizens Committee. For more information, please go to Solidarité avec les autochtones.org. Alternatives and Canadian Dimension Magazine are partners in an international conference on climate justice and ecological alternatives. Cochabamba Plus One features dozens of speakers from around the world, including Pablo Solon, Bolivian ambassador to the United Nations and initiator of the World People's Conference on Climate Change in Cochabamba, Council of Canadians Chair Maud Barlow, Ian Angus, editor of Climate and Capitalism, Dale Marshall of the David Suzuki Foundation, and John Cartwright, chair of the Toronto Labour Council. The conference will take place April 15th to 17th at the University of Quebec at Montreal. For more information and to register, go to canadiandimension.com or alternatives.ca. That was Around the Left for the week of March 31st, 2011. Since the election writ was dropped, Stephen Harper has been making a great deal of hay out of the fact that uh, Michael Ignatieff could possibly form a coalition with the other opposition parties to overthrow what uh, he calls the democratically elected Harper government. He's arguing that this arrangement is somehow, in his words, unprincipled, if not illegitimate. 
to discuss the uh, whole specter of an opposition coalition and uh, its overall responsibleness, we're speaking with University of Victoria-based Dennis Pilon. He is a political scientist and a contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine. So welcome to Alert, Dennis. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, let's go back to uh, 2008. Uh, do you believe that uh, that uh, attempt at the time to form uh, for the opposition parties to form a coalition was, uh, in Mr. Harper's words, unprincipled? Well, absolutely not. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that we thought that the idea of majority rule was, you know, one of the key ideas of democracy, you know, respect minorities. But, hey, if a decision has to be made, then uh, let's all take a vote and the majority would win. Harper has managed to turn this around so that when the majority tries to exercise its rights to make uh, decisions, there's something undemocratic about it. Uh, there's certainly nothing in Canadian parliamentary practice or past experience that suggests that if a majority of MPs want to change who the Prime Minister is, uh, that that's not all right. That's perfectly all right, according to our rules. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, not something that happens very often. It doesn't, happen, it doesn't happen very often, because normally one party gets a majority of the seats. So a lot of the democratic failings of our system get hidden behind these sort of uh, phony majority governments that we regularly elect. You know, Canadians seldom give one party a majority of their support, but our voting system regularly turns, uh, you know, 40, 43 percent of the vote into 60 or 70 percent of the seats. And then our, our prime ministers can, you know, do whatever they want until the next election time. The problem that Harper's having is that he's having to suffer a bit too much democracy uh, because he's only got 38 percent of the popular vote and he doesn't have a majority of the seats, he can't ram through his ideas the way most of his predecessors had. And, of course, that frustrates him greatly, especially because his policies aren't very popular with Canadians. Well, I'm wondering, though, if the, the presence of a party, the Bloc Québécois, which is, uh, whose mandate is essentially to a sovereignty association dividing the country, if that changes the dynamics uh, in some way that uh, you would have a, a coalition in which the, the bloc was uh, a determining factor and, and therefore could wield some influence. Do you? Well, there's a whole bunch of arguments there, of course, that are, are, are questionable. I mean, in many ways, the bloc operates as a kind of Quebec first party. Uh, lots of people vote for them who don't necessarily want Quebec to leave the country, but they do believe that the bloc Quebecois is the best uh, preserver of Quebec's interests within Confederation. But that notwithstanding, I mean, Harper, you know, his argument would have been more compelling if he hadn't made the same arguments to the bloc in 2004 when Paul Martin was the Prime Minister. You know, when Paul Martin was the Prime Minister with a minority government, Harper was scurrying into hotel rooms uh, trying to make deals, uh, you know, with the bloc, with the NDP, to install himself as the Prime Minister at that point. And I, I really don't understand why the conventional media only seems to have caught on to this recently. They should have been right on top of this in 2008. So either he's a hypocrite uh, or he's wrong uh, on whether or not these coalitions are, are good or bad. I think people can take their pick. I think both are probably accurate. Well, it's not just the media. Even the leader of the Liberal Party, Michael Ignatieff, is has been quite adamant that he will not seek to work in a, in a coalition with the opposition parties uh, no matter what. So what do you make of that uh, denial? Well, it's a desperate admission of, of weakness, that, uh, that the politicians, uh, other than the conservatives, seem to be very weak to set the agenda. Part of the problem is the conservatives have very deep pockets, 
and they're drawing a lot of insight from the Republican Party down south. And the attitude there is, damn the truth, you know, damn you know, any of these you know, facts, don't let that get in the way. Um, you use your moneyed power to advertise your own truth. And that's what the conservatives are doing. They're going to swamp the airwaves, the hockey game, uh, you know, televised bingo, whatever. And, and the message will be all these lies and distortions that the conservatives have been parading. And, uh, you know, the facts, uh, that won't matter because they will have accomplished their goals on the ground. And Ignatiev is just surrendering, essentially. Uh, you know, I guess he feels like he's cornered and he can't talk about a coalition, so he'll just say, well, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. One quick question, one last question. Um, what about in Quebec? I mean, it seems like the, the Bloc Québécois in particular is being really uh, smeared through all of this. How are people in Quebec responding, and what could the consequences be of this con- continued dialogue around the nefariousness of a co- coalition with the Bloc Québécois? I agree with you. It's, uh, it's really unfortunate what's happening because the bloc represents uh, a great chunk of the progressive tradition in this country. Uh, and a lot of the policies that the bloc supports, a lot of Canadians support, uh, whether they're in Quebec or not, in terms of universal uh, social programs, holding the corporate class to account. I mean, there's some mixed messages from the bloc, but on the whole, I think they voted that way. Uh, I think what we're seeing here is the long strategy on the part of the conservatives. They are banking on the fact that come the next parliament, they'll be able to pass a new redistribution bill that will increase the clout of B.C. and Alberta, and then they feel they won't need Quebec anymore to form a majority government. And that's really where the Conservatives would like to be. Well, Dennis Pillon, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing this analysis with us, and we'll just have to see how all of this unravels as the uh, election goes. So uh, thank you for joining us on Alert. Thanks for having me. And that was Dennis Pilon. He's a professor of political science at the University of Victoria and a contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine. The Conservative government has been pushing very strong get-tough-on-crime policies in a bid to try to attract more voter support and they argue, stem the tide of a rash of violent crime across the country. Paula Malay has practiced criminal law for 15 years in Toronto, Kingston, and Manitoba. She acted mainly as defense counsel with a part-time stint as prosecutor and spent hundreds of hours in penitentiaries representing inmates. She is a research associate with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and uh, she is quite critical of the Harper government's policy towards crime control. So welcome to the show, Paula. Thanks very much. Okay, there is uh, currently within much of society a perception that... uh, there's been this explosion of violent crime in our inner cities. Uh, and so that in order to deal with this uh, crime wave, we have to put more people in jail and build more jails and uh, you know, harsher sentences for uh, young, young people and so on. Is there um, any research basis, a factual basis, for the Harper government's crime control strategy? Or is he just telling people what uh, he thinks they want to hear. Um, he uh, is definitely telling people what they want to hear, and he'll be happy to say so. Uh, he and his ministers are very clear that they don't really care what the statistics say or what the facts are. They know what the public wants, and that's what they're going to provide. Uh, 
Um, the unfortunate thing is that up to now, at least, the public has gained most of its information about crime in Canada from the media, and I don't have to tell you that what the media highlights is the, the worst kind of crime, and they repeat uh, and at to saturation point their stories about violent guns, gangs, and the rest of it, crime. Um, there's no question that there are pockets of, of places in the country where violent crime is an issue. Some, some inner-city places uh, we can think of right off the bat easily. But those are, you know, quite focused, and they don't affect everyone in the country. And, in fact, most people in Canada have had no personal um, uh, contact at all with crime. And so the, the amount of actual information they have is, is very limited. Um, the, the government will tell you, um, this government will tell you, that crime is on the rise. Uh, Statistics Canada will tell you that it is not. Uh, we know that for the past 20 years, uh, the crime rate has been dropping steadily. The violent crime rate has been dropping steadily. The homicide rate has been dropping steadily. And all of those, they will claim, are on the rise. Uh, so you can draw your own conclusions about what that's, what that's actually about. Um, it's a mystery, really, to me, why they're taking the approach that heavy sentencing, um, at more uh, criminal offense, uh, legislation and harsher prison conditions are anything mm -hmm. that would remotely uh, address the crime rate that we do have, but that seems to be their solution for everything. Well, what about uh, alternatives to uh, punitive deterrence? Uh, like, how successful have uh, the uh, community crime prevention strategies, like Winnipeg's, uh, you know, anti-gang, uh, you know, at the community level, their anti-gang uh, strategies? How successful is that? Uh, has that proven to be? That particular program I'm familiar with, but I don't have um, the statistics as to what they're claiming in terms of success rate. Uh, I do know that those kinds of programs are highly successful anywhere they've been tried. Uh, we know that investing our hard-earned dollars um, into preventive programs like that one are, are far more sensible, both financially and in terms of the effect on the community and the individual, than anything uh, that you can do by way of incarceration. Uh, I've learned myself recently that you can raise the incarceration rate all you like, and it won't drive the crime rate down. So that's a complete waste of taxpayer money. Um, uh, for example, if you take an average maximum security cell, it costs $600,000 to build, and then it costs another almost quarter of a million dollars to house that person in that cell per year. Take that kind of money and apply it to your preventive programs, your rehabilitation programs, substance abuse programs, mental illness issues, and believe me, it'll come in at a lot less money, and mm -hmm. it will be far more sensible and useful and healthy for the communities and the individuals involved. Well, I think that uh, for a lot of people, there is a basically a moral argument that, uh, like as a society, we have to express our outrage that uh, a ne nefarious crime 
has taken place and that the, the perpetrator has to be held responsible. You know, the, you do the crime, you do the time. And, and that uh, we need to, to punish people for wrongdoing, even if there's no obvious evidence that it will uh, mitigate uh, crime in our communities at large. So what, what do you say about that moral outrage type mm-hmm. argument? Yeah, I have, uh, you know, I understand and respect that position, and particularly when it comes to the victims who've been subject to crime themselves. Um, I want to say that there are a number, large number of victims groups out there who take the position that over-punishing produces a very negative result, and that's not what they're looking for. They much prefer and think it's much healthier for both themselves, the offender, and the community to engage in some type of restorative justice um, event and process. Uh, We know that sending people to prison for very lengthy periods is more likely to produce more crime rather than less crime. So... The point is, if you want to punish, that's one thing. But if you get carried away, what you end up doing is creating more problems for public safety and not less, of fewer problems. So it's, it's a counterproductive way to go. And that's not to say you don't put anybody in jail, because there are people who need to be there. And there is something to a denunciation aspect. I guess there's, you know, some people would call it a retribution aspect. It makes people feel better to be able to do that. But you have to be very careful about how you do it because you could end up producing more crime rather than less crime. Talk about um, the uh, maybe the the racial divisions, uh, the uh, those aspects of it. In, in the United States, they say that about one in three black males are expected to have served some time in jail, and I, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I'm I'm quite certain that the Aboriginal population uh, is in in jails is out of sync with uh, their actual numbers in the wider society. So, is there any sense that this sort of punitive punishment that there might be some repercussions in terms of the the wider social fabric and in that context? Yeah, the uh, there's no question that the the crime agenda being proposed by the Harper government will have a completely disproportionate effect upon Aboriginal peoples. Everyone admits that, including the Correctional Service of Canada. These are the people that run the penitentiary system, so they should know. And uh, the, the numbers are, are absolutely shocking as to um, if you look at the proportion of the population, the general population that comprise Aboriginal people, it might be 3 to 4%. You look at the population in the jails, and it can be anywhere up to 70% or more. It's It differs from place to place across the country, but there's absolutely no question that those those are the people who are most affected by this, mm-hmm. as well as, and uh, leaving aside the racial aspect for just a moment, there are a couple of other areas that we need to be looking at. There are huge numbers of people with mental illness in the prison system today. Um, the prison ombudsman estimates about 25% of new admissions to prisons uh, federal prisons are have some kind of a me- diagnosable mental illness. This, these are not people who should be in prison. That's obvious. There are up to some estimates say 80 to 90 percent of admissions are people with substance abuse issues. That could be alcohol or illicit drugs. These are treatable problems. Um, you know, these are fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as well is starting to turn up in large numbers in prisons. We know how to deal with these. We know how to prevent people like these from um, committing crime. And that's 
none of them should be in prison except the most dangerous of them. And so those are things that can be handled in the community by the correct programs, and, and the money would be well, well uh, spent there. Well, um, Paula, these uh, views are, are quite timely given that we're recording this just as uh, some of the anti-gang programs here in Winnipeg are, are losing funding. So we thank you for your yeah. perspectives, and uh, we'd like we hope that uh, that message uh, penetrates the consciousness of the electorate. Thanks. I hope so too, and I hope the anti-gang programs keep up uh, keep up what they're doing in Winnipeg. It's very important work. Thank you for joining us Thanks on so Alert. Much. And that was Paula Malay. She practices criminal law, has practiced for 15 years in Toronto, Kingston, and Manitoba. She is a research associate with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. We call the cover story of the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazine, No Running Water. It describes the horrendous conditions on northern reserves in Manitoba. The author of the article is former Winnipeg Free Press assistant city editor Helen Falding. Helen has moved on to the University of Manitoba's new Centre for Human Rights Research Initiative. We caught up with her at her office there. Welcome to Alert Radio, Helen Falding. Thanks for having me on. Can you start off by giving us a little bit of context and background on this issue? What reserves do you describe in the article? Where are they located? Uh, the main ones that I uh, focused on were the Island Lake Reserves. There's four reserves up there, uh, Wasagamack, St. Teresa Point, um, and Garden Hill are all on Island Lake itself. And then there's Red Sucker Lake, which is a, a nearby community. Uh, they're about a 70-minute flight northwest of Winnipeg, and not very far from the Ontario border. How many families there have been denied running water, and how do they obtain their water? What do they do for things like toilets? Uh, there are about 10,000 people living in the Island Lake area, and about half of them, so about 5,000, uh, don't have running water. And uh, what that means in, in most cases is that they are uh, collecting water in buckets from a community tap, which they have to walk home with or drive home if they're lucky enough to have a vehicle. Uh, and uh, in terms of waste, they are relying on outhouses, which is a bit problematic because it's, it's very rocky and you run out of places to dig holes. Um, or in some cases, they're literally just dumping out um, a bucket uh, that they're using indoors and dumping it out in the backyard. So what are some of the effects of a lack of running water or a lack of clean running water on the health of residents in these communities? You know, there's a really long list of health problems that you, could, that you can get from having to live that way. Um, the most dramatic one uh, was the H1N1 flu, which really swept through that area in the spring of 2009. It was spreading really quickly, partly because people couldn't do the simple things like washing their hands after looking after a sick child. Um, and, you know, as you know, that's a, that's a pretty deadly flu. There was somebody in that area who died, and there was um, somebody else who lost, uh, lost their baby. So, um, so that's just number one. <laughs> you can also get um, pretty serious chronic diarrhea, which, which is quite a big problem in, for babies and the elderly. Um, and it's it, you know it's not good for anybody's health to to have diarrhea on and on, and that's that seems to be often happening in people who are actually drinking lake water 
because it's too far to go to the community tap. Skin problems are another huge issue, especially for little kids. Um, you know, kids need to be bathed ideally every day and have their clothes washed often. And if you don't have running water, you can't do that. And a lot of kids will develop skin problems. Some kids, some of the kids would have had skin problems anyway, but, it, but they don't heal if, if you can't wash the kids regularly. So how long has this been going on and why hasn't this problem been addressed? Uh, essentially forever is <laughs> how long it's been going on. Some of, the, some of these families only settled, really settled full-time into the communities in about the 1960s after a sort of semi-nomadic lifestyle. And when they were living out on the land, this wasn't so much of an issue. Uh, everybody had fresh water that was pretty clean that you could drink out of a lake. People were living far apart. You didn't run out of places to to have an outhouse or facilities like that. But since the 60s, people have been living um, in a town site, and you can't run a town site really without running water. Why hasn't it been fixed? The bottom line is because the Federal Department of Indian Affairs hasn't gotten around to it. So half the homes did get running water within the last few years, and the other half can expect to maybe in the next decade at the rate that Indian Affairs funding is going. This isn't just a Manitoba problem either, right? Like issues with acceptable drinking water on First Nations are common and extensive across Canada. Yeah, um, the the no running water specifically is uh, more a Manitoba problem than anywhere else. About 40% of the First Nation homes without running water are in Manitoba. There are also There's also a, a community, Pekanjikum, across the board in on, on uh, sorry across the border in Ontario with similar problems and there are a few other communities like Lubicon and Alberta scattered but Island Lake is the biggest and worst example of not having running water for most first nations the issue is more that the water is running out of their taps but it's contaminated so you can't drink it you might have to boil it. You might have to use bottled water. And there's something like 115 First Nations across Canada who have that separate issue. So what have these First Nations been doing to try to bring attention to these conditions or to achieve some sort of action on this issue? The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs uh, started up a postcard campaign after the free press stories ran. Uh, so anyone who wants to get involved with that can go down to their office downtown and pick up a postcard, fill it out, send it to the Prime Minister. It's got a picture of a little kid saying, I don't have running water to you. Uh, what hu- water is a human right. Um, the uh, um, head of the Northern Chiefs Association also flew to Ottawa and spoke to officials there, and he also spoke to the Pope recently about this issue. Have there, has there been any effort to get the UN involved? Um, there has been some talk about that, uh, and I'm not aware of, of whether anything really specific has been done there. I know the United Nations will only get involved if every avenue domestically has already been tried and failed. And I think there's still some hope that uh, the federal and provincial governments are going to come through. Uh, just within the last week, the province announced that they are working on a a joint apprenticeship program with the federal government that would train local people to install plumbing. And that's essentially what this is about. It's a need to install plumbing. So that would be be a first step to speeding up the solution of this problem. 
What about federally? Has the Harper government uh, done anything to do with this? Was there anything, say, in their recent budget that would address this problem? Not a thing. Uh, the Indian Affairs Minister, John Duncan, is well aware of this issue because of the free press stories. And, you know, we got his attention, but I, uh, it, it seems like uh, either he didn't think it was worth bringing to cabinet for this budget or he did, and they just had other priorities. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you, Helen, for speaking with us about this. It's a really important issue, and hopefully uh, it won't be a decade before the rest of these families uh, have running water. Yeah, well, one thing I want to mention is uh, now that I'm working for the University of Manitoba, uh, one thing we're exploring is, is whether there are some scholars on campus, uh, some researchers who would like to do a collaborative research project about water as a human right. So we're just beginning discussions on that, but you, you may see something like that uh, come out in the next year or so. If there anybody who's, is, who's listening that's interested in that, is there any way that they can contact you about that? For sure. I'm at the Center for Human Rights Research. We've got a nice website, so you can look that up, or you can email me. Uh, I am in the university email system. My last name is F-A-L-L-D-I-N-G. Perfect. Thank you for speaking with us. Thanks a lot. Alert has been speaking with Helen Falding of the University of Manitoba's new Center for Human Rights Research Initiative on the lack of clean running water in many First Nations in Manitoba and across Canada. With the recent uh, decision by the Harper government to purchase jets, the whole issue of military spending is starting to come into focus over the course of the election. To discuss that, we have with us here Bill Robinson. Bill Robinson is a defense analyst and a senior advisor of the Rideau Institute. He's been writing about Canadian defense and security policy issues since 1983. From 1986 to 2001, he was on the staff of Project Plowshares, an ecumenical peace center of the Canadian Council of Churches. Since 2001, he has done research and writing for Project Plowshares, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the Canadian Network to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, the Polaris Institute, the Radio Institute, and other organizations. So welcome to Alert, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Bill, politicians and much of the mainstream media has helped create the perception that Canada is not pulling its weight in terms of its military commitments, that we should be spending more on the military. How does Canada, in fact, compare with other nations when it comes to military spending? Well, Canada is actually the 13th largest military spender in the world. That's in terms of the actual dollars we spend. And, uh, or you could uh, say we're also the sixth largest military spender among the members of NATO. So we're, we're a large military spender. It doesn't give us a huge military capability. You have to be an enormous military spender to <laughs> to have that kind of great power capability. And uh, Canada doesn't have that. And even if we spent two or three times what we're spending now, we really wouldn't be in that league. But we're, nonetheless, we are quite a large spender at about $22 billion a year right now. And uh, historically, uh, how high has Canadian military spending been? Well, this level we're at now is the highest we've been since the Second World War, and that's adjusted for inflation. That's under the Harper government? Yeah, that's right, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's been rising. Um, we, there was a, a reasonably large reduction at the end of the Cold War of about 
And that ended around 1998, and it's been building up ever since then. And so we're now at uh, at a level where we're higher than we ever were during the Cold War. Okay. Well, all this military spending that we're doing, uh, is there any sense that it might actually, far from protecting us, actually imperil Canada's national security? Well, certainly I, th- I think that's, that's a possibility and that... Um, the more capability that we have, really, the more we get pressured to to uh, participate in in uh, some of these international events. Um, I, I wouldn't say that all of the things are, are necessarily bad for Canada to participate in, uh, but I'm certainly glad we weren't in the invasion of Iraq, for example, and I wish we weren't in Afghanistan. Um, and the more capability we have, the more likely it is, really, for our... Um, for the United States and other close uh, allies to put a lot of pressure on Canada to to join these uh, missions and to, to stay, to extend our participation in them, for example, as we've just done with Afghanistan. So really, uh, if we had less military capability, we might find ourselves uh, less involved in, uh, in a lot of uh, mistaken adventures. Um. Well, what about, uh, are we, uh, these military missions, are they being... Uh prosecuted at the expense of other uh, maybe, you know, peacekeeping missions or uh, disaster relief, that sort of thing? Is that more yeah. accelerating in recent years? Yeah, very much. We used to be a, a major contributor to, to peacekeeping-style missions. Uh, we used to be really quite often the largest single contributor of troops to United Nations peacekeeping and uh, we've simply basically disappeared from that. We, and right now we have about 56 military personnel uh, participating in UN missions out of over 84,000 that are deployed around the world right now. So we've essentially disappeared from peacekeeping. Uh, that's largely because um, the Department of National Defense, the defense lobby and so forth, would rather see us involved in the missions such as at as Afghanistan, NATO missions, and um, and not in peacekeeping. Uh, okay. so we've we've uh, essentially disappeared from that uh, area enti- and almost entirely. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it also beyond the question of what could the military be doing, I think uh, it's important for us to to consider what Canada could be doing internationally for our security and for the people's of people around the world in non-military ways. The amount of money we spend on the military is not enough to make us a great military power, but it is a large amount of money over the next uh, 17 years of, of what the Conservative government calls its Canada First Defense Strategy. We will be spending about $100 billion more than we would have spent if we had just kept our military spending at the level it dropped to at the end of the Cold War. So if we just removed that buildup, that would be about $100 billion difference over the next 17 years. That's a lot of money. And we could be doing a lot around the world in, in humanitarian ways through aid and other forms of getting it, dealing with climate change effects on the poorer parts of the world and so forth. Okay, Bill. Well, we uh, really appreciate those perspectives. Uh, hopefully they'll uh, make a breakthrough in this election where uh, policy is being discussed by all the parties. So I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Alert. Uh, thanks for having me. And that was Bill Robinson. Uh, he is a defense analyst and senior advisor of the Rideau Institute. 
Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week's show is about working class heroes. One of my favorite working class heroes of my life is Eugene V. Debs, leader of the American Socialist Party, leader of the Pullman Strike, a real amazing human being. He said, I have no country to fight for. My country is the earth. I am a citizen of the world. Gene Deb said to hell with war, to hell with all who crave it. When masters rule the world no more, we'll need no wars to save it. Why the ones who own the tools hoard the wealth Make the rules The planet suffers For the powerful few Gene Debs had a lot to say Years ago True today With two million locked away What can we do? There's a better world waiting Work to win it Put an end to poverty To hunger, despair Let work have meaning for us all. No 
Eugene V. Debs, American Labor Hero. I love these old songs, and today I'm going to play at least one more of the old ones. Here is Paul Robeson singing the classic Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe, but I ain't dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die Says Joe, I didn't die And standing there as big as life And smiling with his eyes Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find Says he. 
They laugh and they tell us the unions are dead. Now it's every man for himself. Well, here in L.A., there's a new union made. I tell you, folks, she's something else. Her name is Yanira, a daring Latina. She knows her strength and her worth. She's younger but wiser, a born organizer, the kind we call salt of the earth. Hey, Yanira, I just want to sing your name. Yanira, daughter of El Salvador. Yanira, nothing ever will be the same. They had murdered her lover for speaking his mind. She ran north across Mexico. The death squad pursued her and did some things to her. I don't think that you'd want to know. But her spirit's unbroken, she's brave and outspoken, a steady, unquenchable flame. And she brought that fire to the sweatshop that hired her. They'll never forget her name. It's Yanira. I just want to sing your name. Yanira, daughter of El Salvador. Nothing ever will be the same. Hey, Viva, Merino. Twenty-seven years old, two kids and no job. She hires on at a shrimp packing plant. Where the boss, he was rude, the foreman was lewd, the perks and the wages were scant. But her bright smile would shine to her friends on the line. How long, good people, how long? They can pull any crime on us one at a time. But in union, we are strong. On the sly, meeting outside the packing house wall. Then the five each brought four to show up at the door of the laborers' union hall. Twenty-five takes the game if they each take three names to sign up for a fight they can win. Oh, it snowballed in time till at last eighty-nine voted yes. The union was in. Hey, Yagi. To sing your name, Viva Yanira Merino. Ya 
Anita is not packing shrimp anymore. She's packing the Union Hall. There is nobody braver for immigrant labor. The immigrant stands for us all. So to hell with a law that would padlock the door. Tell me which side are you on? I couldn't be clearer. Let's side with Yanira and the courage to carry it on. Hey, Yanira, I just want to sing your name. Yanira, daughter of El Salvador. Yanira, nothing ever will be the same. That was Charlie King singing Yanira Marino, and before that, Paul Robeson singing the classic Joe Hill. That's it for this week, folks. We'll see you next week. Keep on picking. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast at rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.